Hi, everyone. I wanted to remind you of a must read. This is a book that you have to have on your bookshelf. It is called The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. He is able to help you make important decisions, give you some guidance on which path to take, and you get to learn how he tapped into the wisdom and power of the unseen worlds for guidance and inspiration. I had the opportunity to interview him, and he was a lovely guest on the Path 11 podcast, episode 343. Check it out. Listen to the podcast. Go buy the book. Again, it's The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. To find out more information, go to his website, carlgreer.com. That's spelled C-A-R-L-G-R-E-E-R.com. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by the Reconnective Healing Global Community. I don't know if you guys remember, but back in 2020, we released an episode with Dr. Eric Pearl and Jillian Fleer about reconnective healing. He was a chiropractor who was working in his practice in Los Angeles, and his patients started to report that they were having these healings just with his hands being near them without him actually touching them. So he went on to research and try to find out what this universal wisdom was behind what was happening. And he developed the reconnective healing process. Their website is thereconnection.com and they are offering an online level one class called the portal to awaken your own healing ability and to learn how to do this. There's over eight hours of interactive content where you will learn to interact with energy, light, and information to experience lasting knowingness, peace, and love without limitations. They gave us a coupon code to give to all of our listeners. It is PATH2PORTAL. We're going to put that in the show notes. And that's 25% off of the Portal Online Level 1 course. I hope you guys enjoy. Let me know if you take it. Send me an email. Would love to know how the course works for you. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. I'd like you to ponder two questions. Why do you exist and how do you think you should behave? These are two questions that we are going to discuss today with my guest, Jeffrey Moore. You might know him from the book, Crossing the Chasm, which has sold more than a million copies, but he's written a new book and it's called The Infinite Staircase. It's a bold new book that combines science and philosophy to answer two fundamental questions for humanity, the metaphysical, where do I fit in in the grand scheme of things? And the ethical, how should I behave? Now, Jeffrey has a much longer bio that we are going to put into the show notes. He has done magnificent things in the world, but that might take me about 15 minutes to read. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more, we're going to learn a little bit more about his history, but we are definitely going to put the longer bio in the show notes for you to read about his background. So Jeffrey, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here, April. Yeah. So, so you've worn many different hats and I usually like to start off with my uh, conversation with people to just give our audience a little bit 
of your background? Like, why should they listen to you? Why should they read your book? So what's your credibility and how do we know you really know what you're talking about? So, oh, I'm not sure I do, <laughs> but, 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 but I think we mentioned that maybe there's some secrets on this broadcast. I think we're all thinking one way or another. My search started, I actually started off as an English major. I became an English professor and literature has always been central to my understanding of the world. And in fact, it's going to show up in the book that, that you just mentioned, The Infinite Staircase. That said, in my 30s, my family moved back to the Bay Area and I actually joined the high-tech industry. And for the last 30, 40 years, I've been working in that industry, essentially telling the story of that industry, right? As a marketing professional and then increasingly as a strategist, an investor, it's all, there's a series of stories around that. In parallel with that, way back in 1968, my wife and I began Transcendental Meditation. So there was a meditation theme that's always kind of underpinned the whole thing. And all my life is sort of like trying to connect the, the immediacy and the sort of concreteness of whatever it is I'm doing, whether it was teaching English or, or, uh, or working in tech, with the more, you know, grounding, being sense of, of beneath that. And so this book was really kind of sitting in the background of my mind for, I don't know, decades. And, and finally, it was like, okay, it's got to come out. And, and so that, that, that's why I wrote it. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about your experience with a transcendental meditation, because I just feel like that that seems to be a place where many people have started, or if they haven't, when they hear about it, they're like, oh, maybe I should check that out. So I know that you've had many years of doing that, which I'm sure led into, like you said, this book and you trying to answer some of these questions for yourself, like, why do you exist and how do you think you should behave? So maybe can you talk to me a little bit about how that meditation practice began to open up this world of questions for you? And what have you really learned in answering those questions for yourself? Yeah, it's interesting. So the, the meditation when we learned meditation, it was kind of grounded in, in, in Eastern philosophy. It was the Maharishi, it was the Beatles. It was, it was a whole era. I think, the, and then more recently, it's become more common to talk about it as mindfulness. But the key idea of both of them is you just want to let your awareness go inner and kind of release the stress of whatever it is that's kind of keeping your mind out in the world and just find that grounding inner center. And as you do that, it, it, initially, when you first start, it's pretty bumpy because there's a lot of stress to release, right? But if you keep doing it and keep doing it, keep doing it, you know, the, the, the stress kind of melts away and melts away and melts away. And it just creates a sense of kind of well-being. And, and if you wake up in the morning with a sense of well-being, it's going to be a better day. You're going to be a better person. And, and bringing that energy into the world is, is kind of, you realize, well, okay, that's my job. My job is to bring that energy and service to the world. and then. What your actual job is, is whatever the world deals with, right? And so, and in my case, it's dealt, it's dealt several hands, but I think they've all, I've always played those hands increasingly from the position of saying, I want to act out the, the well-being that's inside of me. Mm -hmm. Great. Now, I'd like us to throw the term out entropy. Okay, because in your book, you do talk a lot about metaphysics. You have the metaphysics of Darwinism, the metaphysics of, I don't have the, I had the, the PDF copy well, and I have metaphysics of, of the three we've been metaphysics of entropy, Darwinism, and then memes. Was memes, yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So I, ha I have the book in a PDF version and I have a certain part of it up right now. So if I were to go through it, I would lose my spot there. 
But so I want to talk a little bit about this. And I know that we're not going to lose the audience because I know that they're interested in this. They've heard this term before. But when I think about entropy, and I'm going to have you define it, I'll define it in my terms, and then you can define it in the right way. But when I think about meditation, and I think about the word entropy, what I've come to understand is that, you know, high, something that has high entropy is a high level of disorder, like a teenager's room, right? Or if we were to take a computer and disassemble it and have all the pieces on the floor, that would be high entropy. When we organize it and, you know, take the tower back and we put it in and it's a nice structure, low entropy. And I kind of feel like when we move into meditation, what we're trying to do with our consciousness and with our soul is to have lower entropy, right? To kind of clear out some of the mind chatter, the monkey mind, the emotions, the feelings, and bring our emotional being and state to a lower entropy. And lower entropy gets us to a, the closer vibration of love. Whereas high entropy can also bring us to higher states of fear or disorder. So I think that's why meditation, you know, when we're kind of talking about it in physics terms. And if we were kind of throwing this fancy word out there, it's kind of a neat word when I first learned it to really look at my life and see what has high entropy in my life, what has low entropy, and how do I begin to lower it so that my life feels a little um, simpler. You know, minimalism would probably be low entropy. And a lot of people are familiar with, you know, now turning to becoming minimalists, right? Living in tiny homes. So I wanted to kind of bring the entropy word in as we were talking about meditation, because that's important to also help people to realize how they should be existing in the world, right? And how they can behave with lower levels of entropy. So I'm going to turn it over to you to further. And so I love, I love what you, it's not, it was the argument I pursued in the book, but I love what you're saying. So it's really cool. What I was saying in the book is it's a weird thing. So we think of entropy as we just described it, the more disorder there is, that's bad because we, we want more order. The irony is the world is on a journey from the most ordered thing it was, which at the big bang, the entire universe was like in a, in a, in a clamshell, right? And it's been expanding ever since, which means it's becoming more disordered ever since. But the irony is, it's like a river. That river is flowing from high order to low order. But in the middle of it, all the living things, including you and me, we take some of that flow and we turn it back into order. And so, and so when you say we take high entropy to order, that's exactly what we're doing. That's what all life does. It, it takes that move to disorder. And just as a, as a mill can kind of repurpose the energy of a river and turn it into work, that's what living, that's what living cells do. That's what living, living beings do. And, and so the irony is just entropy is actually not the enemy. It's actually the energy of the universe, but we're redirecting it toward, toward this state that you described, which is very cool, by the way. I, I never thought about going through meditation, going from high entropy to low entropy. I like the idea a lot. Yeah. And I remember in your definition, too, it was a little bit different than I had understood it because you gave the example of fire, right? Isn't there something in there with fire? I'm not sure about that, but, 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 but the point about entropy in general is the universe is always trying to get to its lowest energy state. These are atoms. These are not people yet. This is just, this is just atoms. And so they, remember, at the Big Bang, it was in its highest possible ever state ever. It's been cooling off ever since. But basically, all the universe wants to do is chill. <laughs> just, that's all it's trying to do. But, the, but in the middle of that chilling, 
we get we get these feedback loops that, that actually take that energy going in one direction and redirect it back into creating more order. At the end of the day, the, the whole key about entropy is there has to be more disorder at the end than there was at the beginning, or it, the world doesn't work. So there always will be more disorder somewhere. So when we lower the, that's a good question. When we lower the entropy inside ourselves, where did it go? I don't know. <laughs> but but I know that I do know for, from your point of view and my point of view that getting centered and that notion of of getting to a, it's almost like a ballet dancer getting set before they dance or a football player getting set before they run the play. The meditation allows you to get set. And, and it doesn't tell you the play to run. But whatever play you run, you're probably going to run it better. Right. Well, and, you know, you bring up a good point, too, like how there always has to be some sort of disorder, right? Like I always think about Earth as being very dualistic. And even if you have tremendous amounts of calm within you, right, or you've been like this expert at meditation or, you know, you're who knows if you're at this state of enlightenment, there's still disorder around you, right? It's It's not like you can you can have this calm, right? Or this low level of entropy with a lot of disorder around you. But if you're here on earth, there's always going to be a level of that disorder, you know, and because life still happens, you know, even if you're chill and you're relaxed and you have all these coping <laughs> skills and you're a great meditator. As soon as you then, have Facebook, it's gone. <laughs> right. It's gone. Or, you know, or if your wife dies or yeah, you know, we're going to talk about Dev too, you know, it's like yeah. it will still come in and it may not create as much disorder for some as it would for others, depending upon what their practices, how in touch they are with their consciousness and their emotional states. But you're right. It's like we can't exist without it, even though we would probably love to in many ways. Well, so then, so then, so then what we can do is, it, it, is we can do our best to have it not overshadow us. Right. So, so that we can, we can be living in the world. By the way, the world challenges in ways that makes us better. I mean, it, it pulls us out of ourselves. And, and so it's, I mean, that's, that is life, right? I mean, that's just the deal. And so I think it, it is not permanent, you know, as the last chapter of the book is about being mortal, it's not permanent. So it's a game played with time limits. And so, by the way, I'm kind of in the fourth quarter. I, it just to give you a sense of my demographic. So I, I, I'm aware of it, but it's, I, I'm still on the field and it's like, I wouldn't play this game. But, but I think when you, when you play it within that mortality framework, you think about, okay, so what do I want to do? And, and, and at some point you realize, I don't want to waste time. I may not, whatever I do may or may not work, but what I don't want to do is just waste it. And so, and so I think that sense of, of, of trying to say, okay, so what, where do I fit in and what should I be doing? And every one of us answers that question differently, but not to ask the question might be a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in your book, you kind of have a model of 12 different stairs, right? The infinite yeah. staircase here. And at each stair, you kind of talk about a different topic. And so when, before we had started the show, you had said maybe the three most important stairs that we can talk about on the podcast, because we don't have a ton of time would be um, stair nine, which is the narrative. And then we're going to talk about being and being mortal. So can you just give a quick overview of why you kind of broke your book down into these 12 different staircases, which 12 is interesting too. Actually, it was, it was 11. To be fair, it was 11. Okay, 11. But three groups of three. So, so to be fair, yeah, the, stair, the staircase is just saying, look, maybe the question was, how do you get from atoms to ethics? I mean, without, without, without a break. I mean, in other words, you could, you could, you could insert a break anytime you wanted, but if you weren't going to have a break, how would you get from atoms to ethics? So the first part 
is the physics. So it's, it's physics and then chemistry and then biology. And by the end of that first set of stairs, you've got bacteria. You're on Earth and there's like two billion years of single cell bacteria. And that's, that's, as, that's as far as we've got. The next set of stairs says, okay, how do you get from bacteria to people? Okay, and that's the Darwinian, that's, no, that's evolution. Okay, how, how do you do that? Consciousness comes in in the middle. Long before people, the things are conscious. And I make the claim even that values and culture appear in mammals before they appear in mankind. That, 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 that because mammals nurture their young, that, that, that value of kindness and, and, and kind of character nurturing, which you sometimes think is very spiritual and above. I claim it comes from below. I come, I, I, it's the one thing we have in common with our dogs. It, 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 you know, we, we, we were nurtured at birth and we wouldn't be here if we hadn't been. So there's a common experience, I think, that underlies that that's actually very important. But then we get to the third set of stairs, which is when language comes in and means it's just a fancy word for ideas. But, but that's where it becomes language. You know, even birds and whales and things have language. We're not, you know, but then you get the next step, which is, I call it narratives, but it's just stories, storytelling. And that's what, that's the unique, that's the one we go, okay, there's no other being on the planet that tells stories. And by the way, my claim, and this is partially because I'm a literature major, careful, I think everything is stories. I think, I think my biography is a story. I think your biography is a story. I think politics are about stories. I think religions are grounded in stories. It's certainly venture capital investments are grounded in stories. You know, I mean, I mean, my whole family's grounded in stories. Every day, Marie and I tell stories to each other. How was your day today? Let me tell you a story about my day. So, so all the, and then there's a story called Jeffrey's life. And, and how do I want that story to come out? And, and so I put, I, I think narratives. And then if you look at the, the kind of the chaos going on in our political lives right now, it's these rival storytellers screaming at each other. But they care about their stories so deeply that frankly, they will act, I think, very badly, but they're acting very badly because they are so passionate about their stories. Their stories have grabbed onto them. And frankly, I think the stories are running them more than they're running the stories, which I think from a mental health point of view, you want to balance. You want both. You don't want to have either one take over the other. So that's why I think narratives are important. Yeah. I, and you're right. I mean, everything's a story. And from a mental health perspective, too, sometimes I try to work with clients to let go of their old stories, right? Because And this kind of goes into parts of the book that you talked about with the ego and how we're honoring the ego and not necessarily trying to fight the ego off, but, you know, kind of understand it. But a lot of times we can hang on to the ego identification of these stories and who, how it made us, you know, and a lot of us will say, gosh, you know, I've been through so much, but I wouldn't change it because it made me who I was. But then we kind of don't even know who we are without the story. Like, what if you begin to unravel the story, then, then who I, who am I, if I don't have this identity? And that can be a little scary. <laughs> well, I think, I think at some point, the question is, how much can I take responsibility for shaping my story going forward? Mm, Do, exactly. what expect, I know I'm a character in this play. To what degree can I be an author? And the answer is not 100%. You cannot be a company. You can't dictate your, 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 the terms of your life. But on the other hand, it's not 0% either. And so part of mental health, I think, is taking a more, well, first of all, I think you have to come from a place of peace. It's very hard to, to, to rewrite your story from a place of, anger and anxiety and, 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 and frustration and fear. But if, so I do think it's important to get centered first. But then I think the idea is, because when, when you're centered, I think you see more options. And as soon as you see options, then the question is, okay, well, what story do you want to try to make come true? 
who, who do you who do you respect? Who do you look out to the world? And say, I would like to be like that person. Okay, well then, how would you rewrite your story that way? And, and and I think just realizing at some point, do I have the freedom? How much freedom do I have to write my own story? And the answer is not one hundred percent, but it's not zero. And then am I am I then living up to the limits of my freedom? As opposed to we, I said earlier, I don't want to waste time. Waste time for me is when I don't live up to the limits of my freedom. You know, I, I, I'm just coasting. And by the way, there are times in life where coasting sounds just fine, <laughs> but, but not, but at some point you want to go, yeah, but I don't want to coast my way off of the planet without going, did anything actually happen? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Hi, everybody. I wanted to just take a quick moment to tell you about a beautiful divination deck of cards that you can get your hands on. My friend, Molly Mandelberg, spent two years traveling the world while writing and illustrating the Wild Hearts Rise Up Oracle deck. This inspired pep talk deck has some serious magic inside. Pulling a card a day from this deck will encourage you to bring your dreams to life, to allow that idea tapping you on the shoulder to finally manifest into physical reality. It's sassy, insightful, and potent. The link to check it out is in the show notes of this episode. Just click on there. It's going to bring you right to the Oracle deck. And again, it's Wild Hearts Rise Up Oracle deck. And I want to go back to the language thing, because there was one sentence in your book that I absolutely loved. And I see this happen a lot, especially when I speak to people who have had near-death experiences or maybe have had some sort of spiritual awakening that they can't quite put into language. And you said, nothing transcendental can be experienced once language has been introduced. And I was like, oh, yes, you just, that was like beautiful. And so many people that have come on this podcast because they are trying to put into words these really amazing spiritual experiences that have changed their lives. And the one thing they always say is there's no language to describe what I'm trying to get across, you know? So when you were kind of talking about us as like, you know, we have the stories and we have a language and yes, you know, other animals do have a language, but you know, we have the spoken word, I guess you could say. I just absolutely love that. I know we're, I kind of like, I'm going a little bit off topic a little bit here, but I wanted to bring it back to language because you know, when we think about these transcendental experiences that we have, it really can be so frustrating, right? That we can't even put the words to it. We can't find the words. People will say, there's no words in the human language to express the love that I felt when I entered into this other realm, you know, and met God or met the creator. Well, or, 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 by the way, you're, you're nine months old and you met your mom, who by the way was better than God. I mean, when you're nine months old, your mom's like, so the point, well, I think one of the reasons we say this is we think that language should be able to control the spiritual experience. But in the staircase, my claim was we're conscious first. Now, like if you look at a baby, a baby is conscious, but they don't have language, right? We know that, right? And, and deer don't have language and dogs don't have language. But they're conscious and they have values. So they, they like, you watch a little baby trying to make their mom smile or back and forth or with a dad, just a, but but it, it, I think the spiritual experience starts there, which is before we have language. I think I, if you think about it, I mean, all the romantic poets used to say, you know, babies were, were transcendental before they learned language. Trailing clouds of glory, I think, was the phrase that, that Wordsworth used in a poem once about babies. But the point is, 
I think those experiences are so fundamental, they're prior to language. And the reason language can't capture them is language comes later in the game. It's more analytical. It, it's more divisive. It divides the world up into subject and object, you know, me and them. All those things are great. We need them. But the spiritual experience is prior to that. It's like, no, that before there was me and them, there was just us, just there. And, and if, you, if you look at, babe, at babies or, or I think any, you look at deer, with, if we have deer that walk through our yard, you, and I think, I want to be one of those deer. <laughs> because they're a little scared. But, but frankly, they just look like, I'm here and this is kind of working for me. And, and so uh, and they have no language to express that. And when you start talking about it with words, then I do think you bring your analytical facility in. By the way, analysis is another stair in the staircase. It's an important stair, but it's a later stair. And nobody ever got united on analytics. We just, analytics divides us. It doesn't, it, and it criticizes, it, it should criticize, but it doesn't unite. So I, anyway, I, yeah. I, think, I think that pre, I would call it pre-linguistic. And so the irony is that experience is closer to our identity than languages, which is weird because most of our identity is grounded in language. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. including the word Jeffrey and April. Those are very important words to you and me, right? <laughs> but, but, they're, but they're words. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, and I would agree with you, you know, like going back to the baby too, like the baby and the mother, the baby and the parents, or even ourselves with our animals. It's communication and thought form, right? Which a lot of times I hear that too. Like if we're in dreams, there's no language in dreams, but it's more communication and thought form. <laughs> Same thing with some of these, you know, magnificent spiritual experiences that a lot of NDEers had or people that go out of body and, you know, are having experiences in the astral plane is that there's communication, but it's not language. It's just that intuitive thought form that we're able to pick up on and giving the example of the baby is perfect because the mother becomes in tune and understands and can hear what the cry is or the facial expressions or with our dogs. It's like, okay, he's acting funny. Maybe he needs to go outside, you know, and there's no language there, but there is. It's just. And I, and I think I, I remember when we were talking about meditation back in the days, we used the phrase consciousness and conscious. The idea of consciousness was you're fully aware, but you're not linguistic. Okay. And, and, and I think, I think that's a, very good description of the transcendental state. It, for me, the transcendental, there was always a, a, a group of people in the meditation group that, that were going to have some, like, just theatrical experience with transcendental state. For me, it was just the opposite. Most uneventful thing that ever happened in my life. It's just, it's just, but it's just, it's just, you're just being aware. But the thing is, you're being aware and, and, and well-being is present in that awareness. And that's such a gift. And I think that starts, again, I think it goes back to our nurturing as a, as a baby. We were given that gift by our mothers or whoever cared for us, mothers, fathers, whoever it was. Because if we were not nurtured in that completely giving way, we couldn't have survived. I mean, a baby can't survive by itself, right? So we, we can have a whole grounding the first year of our life for sure. And frankly, really, the first several years of your life, you're just given so much. I think that that. That's that. That's part of what I think that experience is about. Yeah. Now I want to go to the being mortal. Without death, we would not exist. And then let me hop over to my notes over here. You quoted a physician. Is it is it pronounced Gwandi? Yeah. No. no. Atul Gwandi, I think it is. Yes. Atul Gwandi called being mortal. 
Yeah, being mortal. And that was interesting, too, because it, it was connected to with working with people in hospice, right, at the end of life. And I just kind of wanted to read the four questions that you also quoted, because you said these are great questions. I totally agree with you that you shouldn't just ask at the end of life, you know, and you talk about the different stages. And like you admitted here on the podcast today, you're in stage four, right, <laughs> of life. But but I think these are really great questions. And I wanted to share them with the audience and have you talk about them. Before we do that, yep. let me, I want to speak to that one. How? What did I mean when they said without death, we wouldn't exist? Let, let me put that in place. Okay, let's go there. Yep. Because, because, and then we'll get the four questions, which are, I think, really critical. That's the whole point, really. But you say, well, look, if you buy into the secular story of the world, that we, that the Darwin evolution, you say, okay, so we're a product of evolution. Evolution, we know, is a product of natural selection, right? And natural selection or life and death encounters in which the fittest survive and they become more evolved. If there's no death, there's no natural selection. That, that, that is impossible. If there's no natural selection, there's no evolution. That means we're back to bacteria. If there's no evolution, there's no us. You, me, our dogs, my house, it can't exist without it. So, so, that, so the point I made in the book is because it's really weird. Because we fear death and, and death can hurt us deeply, particularly when people we love die. But without death, we couldn't be here. So it's like, I said, we owe death and vote of thanks, which was a very weird sentence to write. I have to but, but it was like, okay. So, so therefore we can't, because I think as a part of us, it just wants to reject or rebel or repel death or not think about death. And certainly I don't think about my dying. And some point you got to go, dude, that's, that's the game. <laughs> so so you, you can't deny the game. You, you play the game, but you can't deny the game. And so that's what got to the four questions. Yeah, no, so right. And I actually had a conversation with a client of mine yesterday, and it was kind of specifically on this topic. My client had admitted to watching a little too much news. And you and I were recording this a day before September 11th. So this is probably going to air in a couple of months. But she was feeling very anxious because the news is reporting that we may have another attack on September 11th. You know, it's 20th anniversary, you know, just feeling very fearful about the pandemic and COVID and where she lives. There isn't a lot of food on the shelves and, you know, all of this fear. And it just feels to me some of the theme in working with a lot of people that struggle with anxiety and the pandemic has, if you already had underlying anxiety or, you know, past trauma or don't have a great relationship with death, this is a really hard time to also, you know, live in on top of it. So I'm seeing like people's anxieties just off the charts. And basically the conversation came back to, well, what's your relationship with death? How do you feel about dying? You know, and then that led into a conversation about her faith and where she can put some of the fear. You know, we went back to her faith. And but really, once we started talking about, well, you know, how do you feel about death? And because it just seems like everyone is trying to outrun death right now, especially in the pandemic. Right. Yeah. Am I going to get this COVID thing? Am I going to get the Delta? If I do, am I going to be a person that survives? Will I have to be hospitalized if I get the vaccination? Am I going to have side effects? Or will it be blood clots? Will I die if I get the vaccine? Like everyone, like death is like here saying, hey, everybody, I'm here. Let's talk about me, you know? Yeah, but to be fair, look, <laughs> evolution also selects for beings that fear death, right? I mean, that that's what, that, the, the people that ran away survived, right? So, 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 it, it, so it's this weird situation where, you know, evolution selects for avoiding death. But, but, the, but, but what's weird about human beings is because we have language and narrative. We can tell ourselves, tell ourselves stories about death. We can talk, we can worry about death when death isn't present. You know, 
and that we're the only species that can do that. No other species can worry about death if death is not present there to them, but we can. So then, and it gets caught up in our narratives, and so it becomes very important. And I think what you were doing with your client was ex- what I would call exerting narrative control over fear. In this case, fear of death. The fear you you can't take away the fear. You, the fear is there, but you can exert a narrative control over it. You can also bring yourself to a place. There is a thing about meditation where you get to a point where you, it's, it's like being, and you think, I think being might be beyond death. If this, is, this is where, this is where I, I'm trying to be as secular as I can, but there's a part of me that goes, being feels like it's even beyond death. But, but I'm going to play the game as if, no, 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 it's just, it's just death. But, but there's, but anyway, back to those, we should probably get back to those four questions because I think that uh, leads to how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. So these four questions and, you know, like people, you know, if they're listening, write them down. These are really good journaling questions, things to maybe talk to your partners about, your children about, yourself as well. The first question is, do you understand what's happening to you and what your options are? What are your biggest hopes and fears? What are your goals? What are trade-offs you are willing or unwilling to make? And is the course of action you are pursuing consistent with your answers to the prior questions? So there's five questions there. So, you know, this, like you said in your book, was a physician that wrote a book called Being Mortal. And these were questions that he would ask people that were in hospice and facing facing their death. Right. So, yeah, so go ahead. I'll let well, you so, talk so, about so, it, it, so, yeah, so, and by the way, that's really, if you have someone in your family who is, you know, in hospice or, or, or what I call being mortal part two, being mortal part two is, is when you are, you've had something happen to your body and you're now fighting a delaying action. Being mortal part one, which is kind of where I still think I am, is you're old enough to, to contemplate mortality in a serious way which I think is pretty late in life. There's, there's a lot of things to worry about. Frankly, when you're raising children, they try to get a job and try to, it's like, yeah, I'm mortal, but honest to God, I'm, what's for dinner? <laughs> I mean, you know, so there's a ton of stuff to worry about. But at some point you say, okay, I, I want, I, I, you get involved with ideas of legacy and impact. And so those same questions which you would ask a person in hospice, do you know what's happening to you? And do you know what your options are? And that's really important to somebody if they're on life support or, or, or something like that. Well, you back it up and you say, you know, okay, but you're perfectly healthy. Do you know what's happening to you? Do you know what your options are? And the truth is, as, as a therapist, that's almost, in a sense, that's the question you ask every one of your clients every time. Mm. Do you know what's happening to you? And do you know what your options are? And, and then the second thing is, is okay. So, what are your goals and objectives? And and goals and objectives are things that we use. Language. This is one of language's greatest tricks, which is you can structure your narrative by putting in place goals. You know, and then you create a plot, and now you're the hero in a plot. It's trying to get to a goal, right? And, and you have objectives, and am I getting the goal or am I not getting the goal? And and not only does that create structure, which but it also creates direction and it creates purpose. And if it, it has the potential to create meaning. So it's, it's a big deal. Okay? Then the third one is, what are your fears? What are the things that, that are holding you back? And, and, and because those come, those again, we, give, we don't get to choose those, but we can man, manage the narrative. It's, but it's really important to surface them. And again, that's probably is most of your job, if I think about it as a mental therapist, you know, because we don't want to surface them. We want to keep them down there, but they, you can't deal with them down there. You got to bring, bring, bring them out here. And then forget what that fourth question is. Read me back the fourth question. Yep. yep. The fourth question is what trade-offs are you willing oh, yeah. or unwilling yeah. to make? Which, which is a great one. 
And but of course, you, you know, by the way, Gawande in his book is talking to his dad and his dad's very near end of life. And, he, and the question he wants to make is like, dad, at what point is it just not worth going on? And his dad says, if I can't eat ice cream and watch a baseball game. So that was his trade-offs. But you realize, so if you back that up and say, well, what trade-offs are you willing to make? Because for a lot of our lives, we make a lot of trade-offs. We stay in jobs that we don't really like, or we might stay in a relationship we don't like, or we, or we persist in letting somebody do something to us we don't like. But at some point, enough's enough, right? And, and, and so I think, what trade-offs are you willing to accept versus, versus not? And then, and then are we, are we actually, this is why I love your study, you said journaling. Because a journal is a great place to ask yourself that last question. Well, am I doing what I want to do or am I not? And, and the nice thing about a journal is you can be really honest in a journal, maybe more honest there than any place else you could be. So it's a great, and by the way, I think most of the time the answer is going to be sort of, kind of, I'm sort of making some progress. You know, nobody says I'm crushing it. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately there are times where people say I'm totally, I'm totally lost. They're very, I think that's actually a lot more common than I am king of the world or, you know, the, the, the Titanic, Leonardo DiCaprio at the top of the Titanic. But, but I think most of the time we're kind of in the middle. And, and so what the journal helps you do then is say, okay, well, I'd like to move up a little from the middle. I, I don't have to be, you know, at the top of the world all the time, but I'd like to lean in. I'd like to move forward. I'd like to feel a little bit better about what I'm doing, make a little bit more of an impression on the world, whatever it is. Yeah. Let me ask you another question too about fear. So you had mentioned earlier, like, and I don't think these were your exact words, but that, you know, like the fear is there and we can't necessarily choose it. But what if somebody does overcome a fear and no longer has a fear? Like, do you believe that fear can be conquered and that you can actually lose certain fears or maybe even lose the fear of death? Yeah. So I think, yes, absolutely. So I think, so think what is fear? It, you know, First of all, biochemically, it, 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 it's a, it's, there's a chemistry of fear. It's in your body. And so, and so you can, and, and, and it's, it's a hormonal, it's one of these uh, hormonal uh, 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 cycles. So, yeah, I mean, we know that, that there are chemicals like oxytocin and, 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 and serotonin and these various uh, neuro, neurotransmitter stuff that, that actually reduce fear. And that people take psychedelics frequently and transcend their fears. So, you know, you could reconstruct that. The fear, the fear is a, is a narrative, I think of fear as a narrative that had, that, that is tied to a set of experiences, whether they were real or imagined, doesn't matter, that now, that has taken over a part of your being, a part of your consciousness. And if you don't find a way to release it, it just, it just, it, 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 it's like an anchor. You, you can't get past it. But I think you, I think, yes, I do think you can get past it. And, and, and there are you know, the people that do desensitization, you know, they, they do that whole thing about look at pictures of spiders to stop being afraid of spiders. I, I'm still afraid of spiders myself. But, but, but the point is, yeah, I think there, there are ways to, and I think it's important to do it. I think, I think, I, yeah, I think it's important. Yeah. Cause just when I think about the topic of fear of death, like every, person that I have met that has had a near-death experience, you know, it was kind of funny. One woman said, like, all of us can't wait to get back and all of you don't want to leave, you know? And like, these people really have no fear. I mean, it's just they're like in this beautiful state of peace, at least it appears, you know, well, the majority I, I, have this greater I, understanding. Yeah. To me, to me, it's very close to the meditative state. It's the same idea, for me, which is you're, 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 you're back to being. But one of the senses that helped me was 
you know, yet you say, look, every living being, we've, the planet's been here for 4.6 billion years. We've had life on the planet apparently for 4 billion years. Every living thing that's ever been has died. Like, no exceptions. How bad can it be? I mean, I'm sorry. Every squirrel, every deer, every dog, every person, every mosquito. I mean, come on. How bad? I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. But come on. How bad can it be? Well, let me ask you this as we close. Okay. Some messages to give our listeners. Like, why do you think people exist? If we go back to those two questions, you know, how should I behave? Why do I exist? How would you kind of sum that up to answer those questions for people? Yeah, but I, I think there's a, there's a kind of a, the three stairs, the first thing was, why do I physically exist? And that was that whole thing about entropy and how entropy can be repurposed to create order. And eventually you create a living living order. And then that second one was, was kind of like, why human beings? And that was the Darwinism and that was a natural selection. But I think the place where it's grounds most important for me was the third thing, which is, why do I exist in the sense of what stories am I involved in and what am I acting on? And, and I like to think of, of, the, of the self as a character, a character in a multiple set of stories. And, 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 and some of those, they're associated with different social groups, associated with different ambitions, different dreams, but they're stories. And, and so the why for me becomes, my why is I am here to act out a certain set of values as a character in a certain set of stories. And some of those stories I think are, are, are more important in terms of what they give to others and giving to others is a big theme for me. So, so that's kind of the stories I want to, I want to emphasize on the most. And then in that context, how do I act best? I, for me, ethics started with actually admiring other people. Who did I want to be like? And I had some teachers and I had some parents and I had some friends. Those are people I want to be like. And then over time, I was able to sort of abstract and say, well, what does that mean? I mean, like, what are they doing that's different than what other people are doing? And that's where I think your ethics start coming in. And I make a point in the book, a lot of my ethics actually came from watching TV as a kid. And I used to, at that time, TV was fairly new and it was all Westerns. So it was, it was, it was Wyatt Earp and Maverick and Rifleman and Cheyenne. There were like 20 of them. And I, I watched them all, all of them. And they were all the same plot. It was all you know, it was kind of a good guy and there were bad guys. And the good guys beat the bad guys. And so that was kind of, that was kind of my essence. But then, you know, as you sort of, you, you get there, I, I, I went to church and I learned about that Christian ethics, which by the way, my ethics are, as far as I could see, Christian ethics. So I love that. But I think at the end of the day, what landed for me eventually was ethics are how you stay in character for the character you've chosen to be. And so therefore, even if there's nobody else in the room, there's still ethics in the room because you still need to act out your character. And so that, that was where it came from. Lovely. Well said. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I feel like we actually covered quite a bit in our time. It flew by, which always means I'm having fun when I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe we're, it's, it's almost over here. But can you let our listeners know where they could find more information about you, where they can buy your book, your website? Sure. So the, the, the website is called The Infinite Staircase by Moore, and it's probably in the show notes so, somewhere. Amazon, obviously, The Infinite Staircase on Amazon is, is, where, is where the book can be gotten. And the, the, on the website, I have a blog, but, a, but a, my first blog, there's a famous painting by a guy named Magritte, and it's, 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 a, it's a painting of a pipe. And underneath it says, this is not a pipe. And his point is, it's a painting, it's not a pipe. So the title of that blog is, this is not a blog. Because my feeling is, I get to write the book. I, I, I don't, you don't need to hear more from me. 
you need to hear more from you and your peers. So when I want the, the, the blog to be is a dialogue, I want people to come and say, hey, look, this was fine, but this, I don't agree with this. And here's what I think. And, you know, I, I just want to keep that much dialogue going. So that's, that's all on the blog on the infinite staircase by more. It's what this word's going to be. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure meeting you, speaking with you. We'll put all that information in the show notes. And uh, just remember people when authors have their books out on Amazon, reviews really, really help them. So if you read the book, if you can give Jeffrey a nice review, that would be very helpful as well. And remember, if you'd actually like to watch this conversation instead of just listen to it, you can watch it for free on our network, path11tv.com. You can also subscribe or get a free trial if you're a visual person and you actually like to see who I'm talking to. So you can head on over to path11tv.com. All right, everyone. Well, until next time, I hope you are all doing well, continuing on your spiritual path, and we will bring another guest back to you soon. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.